If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Colossians. Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. We've just completed Jonah. So now we'll be taking some time to go through Paul's letter to the Colossians. This morning I just want to look at the brief introduction to this letter and also to look at the big picture of it to give us a bit of context as we as we go through verse by verse through this book. So this this evening we'll be looking at chapter 1, the first two verses. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is perfect. The word of the Lord is authoritative. And the word of the Lord is sufficient. Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we... We thank You that You are indeed sovereign and in control. We thank You, Lord, that You are at work in our lives. And we ask that You would use this book, O Lord, and this church at Colossae to encourage us, to teach us, and to equip us for the task that You have prepared for us. We thank You for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been confused? Not the kind of confusion where you don't have a clue about something, where something is brand new and fresh, but this different, almost more perplexing kind of confusion that comes about perhaps the second or third time you take up a task, where you are pretty sure you know how to do it, but there's an itchy feeling that somehow you haven't got it all right. One of the best ways that that I could think about this for myself is if you're driving in a new place without good directions or perhaps without a GPS or I don't know if you are going to a place where the address doesn't work in GPS. Imagine that. And you're driving down a street and you know you're supposed to turn right at a certain point but you say to yourself, I've been here before but I'm not really sure if I'm there yet. Um... Do I need to go down another mile or or have I already passed it a mile back? And, And what can be very perplexing about that is you know that if you stop and turn around, you may never get to where you're going. And yet in the back of your mind, you think if I don't stop, I'm just going to get further lost because I'm going to be going further and further away from my destination. And we can be sometimes, I think, paralyzed with fear about what to do and second guess ourselves. Well, if that's a challenge in driving, imagine what a challenge that is for us in life, in trying to live the Christian life. If we're not quite sure if we're doing the right thing, we think we're on the right path, but we're looking for some affirmation because we want to please the Lord, we want to do the right thing, we want to think God's thoughts after Him, but yet there's a nagging feeling that something isn't right. 
That's the situation that the church at Colossae is facing. It is a church that has a great many things going for it. But at the same time, there is error creeping in. There is conflict and the church is not sure who to listen to. And so God in His gracious providence brings the Apostle Paul to them to write them this letter to help them to be firmly grounded, to help them to know which directions are right, to help them to know where to focus. And the great blessing of God's Word is is that that blessing does not just come to a first century church. It comes to you and to me. Because this letter has been preserved for our benefit. And so, this evening I would like us to look at this letter from the 30,000 foot view before we delve into each of these separate controversies. And I'd like us to look at Paul himself, a little bit of his biography and his background, especially as it is fit for the church at Colossae. And then secondly, we will look at the church itself, (coughs) their needs, their struggles, and it will give us an idea as to why Paul is giving the advice that he is. And then lastly, we'll look at the blessing that Paul wants to bring to this church. A blessing that we see here in verse 2. Well, let's begin then by looking at Paul. Paul introduces himself yet again to us as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And he is along with Timothy. And if we think a bit about the background of Paul, we cannot help but begin thinking about Paul the Pharisee. Paul, the exquisite theologian, even when he's on the wrong side, as it were. He spent his days and nights studying under the finest of teachers that Judaism had to offer. He learned at the feet of Gamaliel. He was an eager and zealous student of God's Word. As he thought God would have him to believe, he pursued it with all of his body, mind, and strength. This is why... When there are confrontations, you notice that Paul is always in the middle of them. When Stephen is attacked by the mob, Paul is right there holding the coats. He wants to be in the middle of this. He wants to see what he thinks God's will enacted. And he goes from there to even further depths as he becomes a persecutor of the church. He not only consents to Stephen's death, But he made a havoc in the church, Luke tells us in Acts. Luke gets his information from Paul himself. They were good friends. And you can imagine sitting around a fire perhaps one evening where Paul is laying bare his soul to Luke, telling him, you know, when I did not understand who Jesus was, let me tell you what it caused me to do. I wanted Stephen to die. And I wanted the church to be ripped apart. And it wasn't sufficient to see that happen in Jerusalem. I had to go out into Judea. I had to go and pressure the authorities to give me a bill so I could go all the way up to Damascus and get them there too. That is how fervent I was in my ignorance. But we all know that Paul didn't remain there. That Paul on that road to Damascus was confronted by the Lord Jesus Himself. And He was forced 
to see and acknowledge that Jesus Christ was indeed the Lord of glory, the God that Paul should have been listening to. And then in persecuting Christ's church, he was persecuting Jesus. And Paul's life was changed and turned upside down. So this helps us as we watch Paul interact with churches. There is a sense in what Paul has said that Paul has been there. Even as we spoke about earlier, as we have difficulties and struggles with sickness and end-of-life issues, it's very helpful to speak to others who have been there. And so, as Paul speaks to these churches, he can say to them, listen, you can turn your life around by God's grace. God is at work in you. Let me tell you what He did for me. Let me tell you how bad I was, how bad things were, and what Jesus did for me. So Paul can give this kind of sound advice to the Colossians. But he was not just a thinker, not just a theologian, not just a man who was changed. He was also a man of action. He was an apostle called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Called by God, Paul tells us in Galatians 1. And here he declares it that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, an ambassador of Jesus, by the will of God. It is something that God placed upon him and he then acted accordingly. We all know the story of Paul as a famous church planter and missionary going all throughout Europe to spread the gospel of grace. Paul was a thinker. He was a changed man. He was also a man of action. But Paul also had a relationship with these Colossians. He's very affectionate With them. One of the amazing things about the Apostle Paul is, is that he developed these deep relationships with many, many churches. We see this here in Colossians chapter 4. If you go there to verse 10, you will see just how much Paul had in his heart to be affectionate for the Colossians. It comes in a little phrase. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now, what does this tell us? That Paul is so affectionate for this church that he takes the time to write them from prison. In his own hardship and suffering, he's thinking of them. Now, you need to recall and remember what Roman prison was like. Roman prisons did not have bureaucrats to come in and make sure that they were up to certain cleanliness standards. They didn't have exercise rooms. They didn't have televisions, cable TV. The food was not checked for health. It wasn't even checked for maggots. It was easy to construct a Roman prison. All you needed were three or four or five strong men who could dig a deep hole. And you would dig a hole and place the prisoner in it and place a wooden lattice or gate over the top of it. And you had an instant prison. And if it rained, guess what happened to you in prison? You got wet. And if it was cold, guess what happened to you in prison? You were cold. There's a reason why in 2 Timothy, Paul encourages Timothy to bring him his cloak because he's cold. So here we have Paul in his own suffering thinking of this church. But what's more remarkable even than just that is that it appears from what we know that Paul has never met these people. 
They're just a church that he knows needs help. Look down a few verses here at chapter 1, verse 4. He says that we thank God since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Now, unless we are willing to think that Paul, contrary to everything we know about him, did not bother to pray for Christians he knew until he later heard of their faith, it appears that he is getting a report secondhand of what is going on in this church. This is buttressed in chapter 2, verse 1. For he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now, I think this is important because it tells us that Paul, who's a man in prison, suffering, suffering for the gospel, is so moved with compassion for this church, a church that he doesn't even know by name, so to speak, that he writes this letter of instruction and care and encouragement. The reason we think that Paul did not know these people personally is that this church is an interesting church and that it is what we might call a second-generation church plant. Many of you have heard the elders and the pastors speak here for years about our desire to plant a church because we were planted as a church to keep that process moving. And that is what's happening here at Colossae. Very likely... This church at Colossae was so dear to Paul because it grew out of his ministry in Ephesus. It was very likely planted by Epaphras, a countryman of the Colossians who heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 6, we read the following. Or excuse me, verse 7. We hear that they have learned of the gospel of grace from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So Epaphras heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus, and he did the only thing that you can do with the gospel. He shared it with others, and he taught others, and he encouraged others, and a whole other church grew up. We see this in chapter 4, verse 12, that Epaphras is one of them, a bondservant of Christ. Now, what does this do for us? I think we need to understand that God is at work through us in ways that we cannot imagine and that we cannot predict. Paul had no way of thinking or predicting or planning that a church would be planted in this town of Colossae because of the work that he was doing. He just knew that he had to preach the gospel and he had to declare who Jesus was in Ephesus. Do you get discouraged because you don't see the effects that you want your ministry to have. You're trying to help someone, encourage them, and they don't seem to listen. Or perhaps you've tried to start a neighborhood Bible study and it hasn't gone. And you think, well, I thought my ministry would be that I would have a weekly Bible study with six or eight or ten people and I could teach them God's Word. And the only thing I ever had opportunity to do was to sit and pray with one person two or three weeks. You see, we don't know what eternal fruit that will bear. And we're not called to worry about it. We're called to be faithful. And in glory we will find out, if we don't find out as Paul did in time, 
that the work that we do for the Lord Jesus Christ has implications beyond what we would imagine. Now, think about for our own personal lives. Paul here is writing this letter of encouragement to a church that a disciple of his planted. Have you ever considered writing a letter of encouragement not to our missionaries, but to the people who live in Ukraine, who minister under them, to the people who live in Colombia, who minister under them, to the people who live in London that minister are ministered to under them? You see, we need to be in a place where we are encouraging anyone who has contact with us, with the gospel. That was Paul's plan, and it was his execution. So what then do we know about this church? We know the Apostle Paul well, but what about this church at Colossae? What we do know is that this city is a city of what we might call former glory. It was, if we think of Nebraska as the breadbasket of America... The area where Colossae was, was the gold basket of the Roman Empire. It was one of the wealthiest places in the known world. But there was an earthquake that came through and devastated several cities. Among them, Colossae and also Laodicea. The difference is, Laodicea had outside help to rebuild, and Colossae did not. And so it sort of faded into the distance It was never quite able to rebuild itself, to reclaim its former glory. As a matter of fact, but for this letter, the world might not even know about this town. There are only two other references in all of extant literature to Colossae. One is in a fragment of a Greek writer named Strabo. The other is in a fragment of a Greek history. We might not even know about this town. But what we do know is God meant for us to know about this town and this church. Something that seemed insignificant in the world's eyes. Something that had seemed past its glory. Something that had seemed as if it had no future. God wants us to know these people. And that's a help, I think, to us. Do you feel past your glory? Do you think that you have nothing further yet to give for the Lord? That no one really cares about you? You see, this happens to us, doesn't it? And it doesn't just happen as we grow older. It happens throughout our lives. When our children first leave home, we think, well, our job is done. We've got nothing else to do. We're in our 40s and life is over. And then a few years later, they get married. And we think, well, okay, we had to get them through to marriage. Now we're in our 50s. But again, now we've got nothing left to do. And then we continue to go on and we're in our 60s and we retire. We say, well, we've done all the work that we can do. Now there's nothing left for us to do. All we need to do is look to this town and look to dear saints throughout history and to say that there is not a day in your life that God has not ordained for His glory. If you are living and breathing, you are there to glorify the Lord. Do not let Satan attack you, deceive you into thinking that you are worthless, that you have no purpose, that your glory is past. God obviously did not think that of the Colossians. 
They were dear to Paul, and Paul describes for us the way in which he thought about them. We see that here in verse 2. They are described as saints and faithful brothers, and they are in Christ. Paul reminds us that every Christian is a saint, not just super-Christians. The word saint means holy one, but it is a call to holiness. It is a call to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to seek Him and God's will. And this is very interesting that Paul calls them saints, as we will see in the midst of all of the difficulties they have. They have some really messed up theology. And they are doing some really crazy things. But at their core, they are saints. Not because of what they think. Not because of what they have done. But because of what God in Christ has done for them. We're reminded of this and that they are saints who are faithful. And this word faithful has two connotations here. Both that they are faithful in performing things, but even more so that they are believing At its root here is the word for belief or faith. Paul reminds them that they are holy ones because they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they follow after Him as their disciples. Thirdly, they are called brethren. Now remember, when the Bible uses this term, it includes both men and women. It is a community that Paul is describing here. And the interesting thing here is that Paul, the super apostle, the missionary extraordinaire, the one in prison who is suffering, treats these Christians from a backwater town who have messed up theology as his equals. Does that stun you? Would that the church at large would have more of this. One of the greatest problems that we have in the church at large are superstars. People who think it is not worth their while to go to church and listen to a flesh and blood pastor because they can get a superstar pastor on MP3. And rather than use that as an additional blessing of God, they use it to get away from the community that God has brought. And they use it to deny the equality that God has brought to the church. There is no ranking in the church of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter where you were born, how old you are, or where you live. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And sometimes it takes a Paul reminding us of this. The reason that he can call them saints, the reason that they are faithful, and the reason that they are his brothers is because of this last phrase. It's a little phrase that Paul loves and he uses over and over again. He says they are in Christ. And to describe that is not only to say that they are Christians, but that they are united with Christ, that they receive all of the benefits from Christ. The benefits of justification, of adoption, of sanctification, of perseverance, of assurance. All that Jesus has to give is theirs in Christ. But that's not just true of Bible people beloved. That's true of you too. If you have professed faith in Christ, if you believe on Jesus Christ, then you are united to Him. You are His and He is yours. All of Him. Everything He has is yours. What a great blessing. It's it's such a blessing that Paul can't help himself, but it seems like 
Every other paragraph in his letters, he's describing what it is like to be in Christ. And what a blessing is found in Christ. And how you are in Christ. That's what it means for Paul to say that Christ is all in all. Everything that is Jesus's is ours by Christ. Well, Paul builds them up here because he knows that they face challenges. Just briefly to touch on them, we'll look at them in detail. They faced challenges first from false teachings, from false thinking. In chapter 2, the first ten verses, we see that they have struggled with philosophy. You see, it is not just modern academics that give difficulty to followers of Jesus Christ. There was that in the first century too. People that came up and told them how they should think and how sophisticated people think and what they should think. And they were challenged by this. And what better way for God to help straighten them out but to bring them perhaps the most brilliant thinker that ever lived, the Apostle Paul. But they weren't just challenged by false ideas of philosophy. They were also challenged by false ideas of legalism. We see this in the second half of chapter 2. That they were told that they had to act a certain way, to do certain things. Touch not, smell not, taste not. And so they were confused. Again, they didn't, weren't sure, if, is this part of what the Bible is teaching? Am I supposed to be doing this to be holier? It again takes us back to our car. Have they gone past what God has said? Or have they not arrived yet? And they need someone to tell them the directions. And on the one hand, they have the legalists telling them everything that they can't do. And then we see in chapter 3, there are those who are carnal, who are telling them, don't worry about it. If it feels good, do it. The exact opposite. You can imagine why they're confused. Let me give you a hypothetical, because I know this never happens in any of our families. Could you imagine if you were a child and you wanted to know if you could do something? And dad said yes, and mom said no. Or dad said right, and mom said left. What would you do? You'd be left very confused, wouldn't you? Now, we know what often some children will do. They'll, they'll pick the one of the two answers that they like best. And that's what the Colossians would be tempted to do too. Those who would see most personal satisfaction and self-worth in legalism would run to that. And then there would be others that would say, no, what really floats my boat is doing whatever feels good. And then you could see the conflict that would arise and it would rend apart this community. And so Paul has to come in and tell them, you need to think properly. Because the second thing that we see is they not only faced false teachings, they faced the consequences of those teachings. Bad theology always leads to bad actions. It does. And so their desire to be legalistic led to a rejection of the physical world, to thinking that they were more important than reality itself. And they began to act inconsistently with their profession of Jesus Christ. They began to, devout, to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus Christ because they thought there were other things they had to do. And so they were trapped in bad thinking. And Paul is going to spend some detailed time helping them to think properly, but also to act properly, to follow the Lord Jesus. This is 
the group, the church that Paul is going to speak to. And he begins here, which for us is an ending, speaking a blessing to them. The general structure of this letter is typical Pauline. There is doctrine at the front end, then there is application at the back end. What we are to think, what we are to do. But he begins here with a very specific blessing in chapter 1 and verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now many commentators will spend a lot of time telling you basically this means hello. That it's just a standard way you throw this into the beginning of a letter. doesn't mean anything. And they take an awful lot of time to tell you that. But I think Paul here is setting the stage for the way he wants to minister to the Colossians. I don't think it's an accident that the very first word that he writes to this church is grace. It's the very first word. He tells them that they need to understand that Jesus Christ and His work is central to all that they are, all that they think, all that they do. Their whole life must be founded in grace. They cannot live apart from grace. He needs them to understand that Christ is central in their life. And this is the way that He can bring strength to them in the midst of their struggles and affliction. You remember when Paul was advising the mother church in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20. He said, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance. Paul knows that the foundation of the Christian life and all that we are is found in grace. But he also gives them peace. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. It's a reminder to us that peace is essential to the Christian life and that peace is so much more than the absence of conflict. You see, we tend to think of it that way. And yet, how many of us would consider Iraq a peaceful place? There's no formal conflict. There are at least no standing armies. But yet we wouldn't consider it a very peaceful place. I am thinking that none of you are planning your summer 2012 vacation in Baghdad. You see, peace is a sense of wholeness. It's a sense of community. It's a sense of rest and joy. That's what Paul wants for the Colossians. And he knows they can only get there by the gospel of grace. He knows that they can only get there from the peace that comes from God our Father through Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is our peace. He is the one that breaks down the barriers, down the walls. Not just the walls of sin, but the walls of misunderstanding. The walls of distrust. The walls of dislike. The walls of conflict that we have in our own churches. This comes from Jesus. So in conclusion, we have here a mighty letter written by the finger of God through the pen of Paul for a church that was not important in the world's eyes, but that was critically important in God's eyes. That they might think 
the thoughts that God had prepared for them, and that they might do the works that God had prepared for them. This is no different than advice that Paul might give to Christ church, the saints at Katy. So I would encourage you to look to the Lord, to look to Paul, to find God's plan for your life and our life as a church in being built up by the gospel of grace and to find the peace of the Lord in it. Let's pray.